morning, Firewell family. And if I've not had the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve as the transitional pastor here at Firewheel. And we believe that God has you here today for a specific purpose and specific plan. And as Chris mentioned earlier, we believe that you are loved and this is a loving group of people. And those of you who are joining us online, welcome as well. Before I get into today's message, I want to begin by saying that I myself experienced what we always say when we say that you are loved. Yesterday, uh, we had a memorial service for my grandmother, the hardest sermon I've ever had to preach. And the Firewell family, in so many different ways, came around our family, many of you who never even met my grandmother, uh, to show your love, your appreciation, whether it was through cards that you sent to our home, whether it was coming to the service, whether it was serving some people here six or seven hours here yesterday serving, uh, providing food. Uh, I mean, my family, most of them who are not saved, by the way, walked out of that place and basically told me over and over again, I can't believe how loving those people are and how much they love you and how much they loved us. Firewheel, that's a testimony to you. And from the bottom of my heart, I genuinely, with all sincerity, want to thank you. I want to thank you for the love that you shared, to, you shared with my family yesterday. And I genuinely believe that you were the hands and feet of Jesus yesterday. And you have no idea the indelible imprint that you left on people just by tangibly being present. Thank you. So today we're starting a new sermon series that I'm really excited about. And you may wonder why the heck this table is actually on the platform. And this is going to serve as a reminder for us as we look over the course of five Sundays. Uh, we're starting a sermon series called The Table. Now if you think about it, a table is a place where conversations happen. It's a place where we do life. It's a place where life lessons can be passed on. It's a place where whether it's at our home or at a restaurant, that we connect with people. It's a way we connect with those that we love. It's ways that, it's a way in which we connect with people. It's a vehicle to connect with people we don't yet know, who we want to know. Friends and those who are not yet friends become friends sitting across the table. Intimacy happens here. Laughter is shared at a table. Tears are shed at a table. Joys and rejoicing is shared at a table. Grief is shared at a table. Interestingly enough, this image of a table is an image that we find all throughout Scripture. We see the biblical text and sometimes this image is used as like a metaphor. And then other times, like we'll look at today, physically there is a table involved. And people are conversing around a table and Jesus is teaching us lessons around a table. So what we're going to do over the course of five Sundays is we're going to look at this image of the table throughout Scripture. We're going to look at various different ways and interactions that happened, conversations that happened around tables, and see what we can actually learn that the biblical text presents us. We just celebrated the Lord's table. And the second sermon in this series, we're going to build the theology of what does it mean when we come to the Lord's table every Sunday when we celebrate communion together. So I'm really excited about this series, and I think it's going to be something that I hope has a very tangible impact on you uh, as we go through it. Now, how many of you have ever been or experienced where you were at a place where you felt like you didn't belong? Anybody ever have that experience? It's kind of weird, right? So like, you get invited to a party and you feel like you don't belong at the party. You feel like you're that plus one who's just kind of come along, right? That you don't really know the person, you don't know anybody there, so you kind of feel uncomfortable a little bit, and so you don't feel like you're supposed to belong there. There are other situations and circumstances where we may be in a position where we feel like we don't belong. In some ways, that's a good thing. So sometimes we've had the opportunity where I don't even know when I've been across the table from another person and be like, Lord, how did I get here to have a conversation with this individual? So sometimes we can have experiences like that where we're asking, why are we in the room? 
and God presents these opportunities to us. And then other times we feel like the black sheep in the room, that everybody's looking at me and knows that I shouldn't belong in this room with all these people. Or belong at this table that I have been invited to. Well, I grew up in the projects. I grew up on welfare at one time. My family, you know, we, we, we suffered through that. And I grew up in a very urban inner city. And so I knew what it was to be working poor in many ways. So I am not fancy by any regards. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't like to wear a suit. Uh, I'm very informal, very casual kind of guy. Uh, those things were just never things that I was necessarily brought up with. I wasn't brought up with, uh, you know, three or four different types of forks and spoons and working your way around a, a formal dinner table. I had to learn that stuff. My wife had to teach me that stuff, okay? Puerto Ricans, most of the time, at my house, we were eating on paper plates with paper forks, okay? You know, that's what, that's what we were doing. We weren't doing any of that. So I'll, I'll never forget a few years ago uh, when I was first in Dallas, I worked at a hotel in downtown Dallas, and when I worked at this hotel, we had our Christmas party, and I won a gift certificate. I won a gift certificate to a, a restaurant called Albernays. I don't know if any of y'all ever been to Albernays. Now, Albernays has got some really, really good food, okay? But Albernays is really, really, really pricey. Now, I immediately knew that I was in a place that I have not really been to before when I drove up in my Ford Taurus and they had valet parking and I'm parking next to the Porsches, the Mercedes-Benz, the BMWs, all that other stuff. And here I come with my gift certificate all happy and my $150 gift certificate still didn't cover the full dinner for both of us. <laughs> this is not my kind of place. I'm used to eating rice and beans and some fried chicken or something. So don't get me wrong, I loved it. So we, uh, we went the day after I proposed to Jen. I proposed to her on her birthday, and the day after that, we went to Albernays. And it became this thing where, at that time, we didn't have a lot of money. But we loved the spot so much that we saved up money. We went there for like the next couple years, every time our anniversary came around. It, made, it was kind of a special moment. But I never forget, I walked into that place, I immediately felt underdressed. I felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. I just felt like something was wrong. I felt like I wasn't supposed to be at the table. Let me make a spiritual connection for you. A table is a place of invitation, a place to belong, a place to connect. And I believe and I hope that you will walk away with today as we look at a very familiar story. Here's the one truth I want you to walk away with today. Everyone is invited to Jesus' table. Everyone is invited to Jesus' table. When Jesus is sitting down, it's an open invitation. And we're going to see in our story today, this story is going to reaffirm this truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus was often criticized by those who professed to know God based upon the people he gathered around at the table. Why was he keeping the company with those folks that he was keeping around the table? So I want to focus on a simple question today. According to Jesus, who is invited to the table? And I believe the answer to that is everyone. If you have your Bible today, we're going to look in Matthew chapter 9 if you want to follow along with us or it will be on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. This is a very famous kind of passage of scripture. But I hope we'll look at it through a little bit of a different lens today. And we're going to see at this dinner that Jesus attends, there's two different groups of people. And both of these groups equally need Jesus. Except one of them doesn't think that they do. The other group knows that they need him, okay? So there's these two groups that are going to be involved at this dinner party. Let me set the stage for you because we're jumping right in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9. So let me go ahead and just set a little context. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. And instead of prompting the praise of the people, as a matter of fact, the city freaked out and told him to leave and basically exiled him from the city. So as we pick up in chapter 9, Jesus has now crossed the Sea of Galilee and returned to Capernaum, which basically became his base of operations almost for his ministry on earth. And as he comes to Capernaum, uh, upon arriving, he heals a man who was paralyzed. And people are in awe. And people realize that Jesus is there. And then people start following him. And then Jesus is on the move. And he moves to the edge of town. And this is where our story picks up. So the first group of people who are at this dinner party that Jesus attends, I'm going to use air quotes. 
Air quotes, they're the wrong people. They're the sinners and the tax collectors. Matthew chapter uh, 9, starting at verse 9, the scripture says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. So let's make some comments here for a moment. So this is the calling of Matthew the disciple. Matthew is a tax collector. What does that mean in our context? So what does that mean in the cultural context to where this was written? What does it mean that he was a tax collector? Now, I don't know about you, but even 2,000 plus years uh, separated from this event, I still don't think anybody gets warm and fuzzy when we talk about tax collectors. Anybody get warm and fuzzy talking about the IRS? Right? If you work for the IRS, I promise that wasn't a dig against you. Okay? <laughs> but... I always thought, why was there such hatred for tax collectors? Well, if you dig in and understand a little bit about the cultural context, it kind of makes sense. One commentary summed it up really well, and this is what it said. The Roman Empire's practice, who the Jews were under the rule of Rome at this time, the Roman Empire's practice was to recruit tax collectors from among the people they had conquered. These natives worked for the hated oppressor. This made them traitors and outcasts among their countrymen. But it was common practice for tax collectors to demand more from their countrymen than was actually due in order to line their own pockets. If the people refused to pay, the tax collector had the threat of the Roman military to back him up. Tax collectors in general were known for their greed, their lack of conscience, and so they were thought of as the lowest form of humanity. That's what a tax collector was in this particular context. So not only does Jesus actually speak to this man, who most would avoid it at all costs, he then has the nerve to ask the tax collector to follow him. Now most people respected Jesus, or often identified him, even as we read in scripture, as teacher. Most of them thought he was at least some type of rabbi or some type of spiritual teacher. And it was very common for spiritual teachers to take upon disciples and the disciples would follow them. But even so, culturally speaking, these people are looking at him like, why are they taking on this guy as a disciple? He shouldn't even be talking to this guy. This is a scum. This is like what's left over. You don't even, he's not even worthy to breathe. They hated these guys so much. But when I look at this and I think about it, I think what is the implication of Jesus' action? Understanding a little bit about the backdrop of who a tax collector is can only suggest a couple things to me. Is number one is that it suggests to me Jesus' heart of forgiveness. Number two is suggests to me his unconditional acceptance of those who will follow him. He just gives him a simple command. He says, Matthew, follow me. Matthew, follow me. Here's a principle for you today. We do not have to have it all together to follow Jesus. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to get your sins all in order in order to follow Jesus. You don't have to have all your affairs in order to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Christ comes and the Holy Spirit moves upon our heart, convicts us of sin, and is bringing us to a place where we can receive Christ, at that point, Jesus takes us where we're at, and he doesn't leave us where we're, where we're at at that moment. He sees ultimately who he's going to make us to be and who we will become. We don't have to have it all together. You don't know how many times I've heard people say to me, Pastor, you know, I think I believe in Jesus, and, and I think that what you're saying is accurate and correct. I just feel like it's not the right time right now for me to come to Jesus because I don't know, I just got a bunch of stuff I'm dealing with, and I don't know if he'll accept me. That's exactly the time when you need to come to Jesus. We don't have to have it all together. This guy is a tax collector. Jesus calls him. All we simply have to do is follow the lead of Matthew. You just have to follow. When he calls, you have to be willing to pick up the phone. When he calls, you, fall, you follow his directive. Because God can turn even the worst of perceived sinners into saints. This would be on the latter, culturally speaking, the worst of the worst. And here he is calling the worst of the worst, at least from the world standard, the worst of the worst, and he's going to turn him into a saint. Not only is he going to turn him into a saint, he's going to turn him into a disciple, a follower, an apostle 
a follower of Jesus. Tax collectors were often wealthy men, so it came at great material cost for Matthew to follow Jesus. Because if this whole Jesus thing didn't work out, it's not exactly like he can go back to start collecting taxes again. Once, this, once he put his eggs in the Jesus basket, it was all over for him. He was following this through. Look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, apparently Jesus isn't a big understander of cultural norms, because not only does he ask a guy who no religious teacher would have asked to become his disciple, but then he goes to the even next step further, and he's going to dine in his home. And guess who else is there? Other tax collectors and sinners. Did you know that sinners hang around with sinners? I know, right? That's like crazy news. People who don't know Jesus often hang out with people who don't know Jesus, and that's, you know, so tax collectors and sinners, those are his folk. And so that's, that's the people who are there. And here they are eating together, sharing a meal. Eating is a deep form of social intimacy. Normally, no sinner was ever welcomed at a righteous man table, man's table. No righteous man would ever consider eating at a sinner's table. So here's the question that always runs through my mind every time I come to this passage. Is why were sinners attracted to Jesus? You notice that whenever you read the Gospels, the sinners didn't have a problem hanging around Jesus. It was always the religious folk. He would even confront them. Chris, our worship pastor, did a great job last week preaching on the story of the woman at the well. The woman at the well, Jesus literally reads her mail, tells her about her sin, and yet she still wants to converse with him. Then the conversation ends. We didn't even get to the full story. When the conversation ends and she realizes and she basically kind of puts her faith in Jesus, she runs and goes and tells everybody. Come see this guy who knew everything about me. She starts bringing them to Jesus then. Why is it, when we read the scripture, that sinners are attracted to Jesus? There's no argument that any person would probably ever make, especially a Christian, that would say that Jesus wasn't the most holy man who ever walked this earth. Now, we know he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man, God in human flesh. But that being said is, here is God in human flesh, and yet sinners were not repelled by him, but they were attracted to him. They wanted to sit with him. They wanted to talk with him. They wanted to listen to him. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to follow him. They followed him wherever he went. He had a, every time he went into a city and people had heard that Jesus was coming, the whole crowd just wanted to be around him in some way. There's a tendency, unfortunately, in Christianity to avoid the world as if we can live in our own little bubbles because of fear. It's that somehow the world will infect us. It's pretty interesting to me that there's this concept like, okay, I know the scripture says, says to be in the world but not to be of the world. But sometimes there's this rhetoric in Christianity that I don't like that becomes so aggressive. And this rhetoric is basically makes it out like everybody else is an enemy. They're an outsider. And being an outsider as an enemy, then it's really easy then to basically say, well, that's them, that's not us. And then basically start siloing into groups. When I see Jesus interact with all kind of different groups, all kind of different people, and yet never compromise one bit. So there must be something in the way in which he did things that we can learn from to be able to do it in the same way. Let me ask you a very hard question. Here's the question. Sinners are welcome at Jesus' table. How about yours? How about yours? Think about that for a moment. 
If Jesus could eat with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, can someone with a same-sex attraction be welcome to your table? Can someone in a same-sex relationship be welcome to your table? Can someone who disagrees with you politically be welcome to your table? Can somebody of a different race or a different culture that you don't understand, can they be welcome at your table? What about a person of a different faith? Can a person of a different faith be welcome at your table? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was, that's what he was called. That's what they accused him of being. Seems to me that's a good thing to be accused of. But you do realize that you can be a friend to a person you don't agree with, right? Where did we lose the element of hospitality? Where did we lose the element of love equals you believe everything I believe? That's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. We can converse, we can dialogue, we can eat at a table, we can even befriend people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't think like us. And you're not compromising the gospel in doing so. As a matter of fact, I believe you're living out the heart of the gospel. Please hear what I just said. You're not compromising the gospel. I believe you're living out the heart of the gospel. If we're going to, as a church, say that you are loved and we're going to make that a thing and we're going to wear it, oh, we got real nice hoodies, got real nice t-shirts, we're going to wear all that. And I genuinely believe that this is the place of that. As I said, I experienced it myself. That means that there's going to be a level of, it's uncomfortable, there's a level of sacrifice, There's a level where we have to build relationships with intention. And there's a level to where our care and our love for people needs to go beyond whether or not they agree with us or disagree with us. Jesus said, they will know me by the way you love one another. And he's talking about that internally, never mind what we project externally. It's hard sometimes, I've been a pastor long enough, it's hard sometimes in the church business just to even see people in a church to be able to welcome those who are not like them across the table. What does it mean for us then to reach a lost and dying world with the love of Christ? You know it's highly unlikely for somebody to walk into this building on a Sunday morning who does not know Christ. The only way they're walking into this building on a Sunday morning that they don't know Christ is because somebody invited them. Now, granted, sometimes the Holy Spirit works in unique ways and people will just genuinely come. But most of the time, people are going to come because there's a relational connection and an invitation was made. And it may be a neighbor, it may be a coworker, it may be somebody that sat at your house table and has told you and has no contemplation, has no, no idea what they're really asking or what they're saying when they're going through life struggles and just feel like they, they confide, can confide in you or can ask you for prayer even though they're not believers themselves. And then it extends to where you share or you bring them a meal and then you invite them to church and they come to church and they get to hear the gospel. But most of the time, that happens around a table. We see people who don't know Jesus every day in our workplaces, at the grocery store, parents of your kids on your kid's soccer team, at a ball game, family members who don't know Christ. My question I always have to ask myself, and I would encourage you to ask yourself as well, is how do we come across to those people? Do we give off a scent of judgment that's like gospel repellent? Sometimes those people who we believe to be antagonistic toward the church actually have some truth in some things in which they say. 
we can give off a scent that repels the gospel in some ways, or do we actually give off a, a scent, so to speak, that is attractive to people, that they want to share a meal with us, so they want to do life with us, or want to get to know us, even though they know that we don't believe the same thing that they do. I believe that's possible. I believe that's what God would want as well. So the first group of people is the wrong people. The second group of people is the right people, at least the ones who thought they were right. I call this group the self-righteous people. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, they'd even say it directly to Jesus, they said it to his crew, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The tax collectors and sinners are the wrong people. They don't deserve your teacher's attention. Doesn't he understand the type of people that he's relating to? This is like scandal of the highest degree. You can imagine that if this was nowadays TMZ, it's all over Twitter, it's got on video. Oh my God, look at Jesus, the teacher. He's eating with Matthew at his house with all these bunch of riffraff. He's eating over there. It's blowing up, it's going viral. It's a scandal. Gossip magazine kind of stuff. Look at verse 12. I love Jesus' reaction. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. So considering the context of everything we talked about, Jesus has just healed somebody physically who was paralyzed at the beginning of the chapter. And then Jesus plays off an image of healing and sickness to then talk to kind of a spiritual matter, the heart of the Pharisees, presenting himself in a way as a one who comes to bring wellness and wholeness and health to the soul of individuals. I call him the doctor of internal medicine. He's the real doctor of internal medicine. There's an implied rebuke with Jesus' words here because no doubt the Pharisees saw themselves as the ones who were well. Why do you think Jesus says that I don't come for those who are well? He's playing into what they perceived about their own self. They didn't say it. They, they didn't walk around and say, well, you know, we ain't sick. You know, <laughs> I want to be hanging with those people, you know, because... I'm just going to be out here and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to synagogue. I'm doing my thing. I can't, I don't want to be around those people. When it becomes those people. Why then were these healthy people, if they were healthy, not doing nothing to heal the sick? As Jesus describes the sick. The sick in this context are those tax collectors and sinners. The sick are those who are sick spiritually, who are in need of what Jesus provides. Why were not the religious people, the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, doing anything to heal the sick then in that way? Why can't they see that his concern, Jesus, is to help the sick and not to persuade them to continue in their sickness? One commentary said it this way, Jesus fraternizing with sinners remains a scandal in the predominantly middle-class suburban Western church. Many of us, like the Pharisees, at best ignore the outcasts of our society and at worst continue to discriminate against them. Jesus came to heal the sick. And we're not just talking about physically sick. In this context, he's talking about those who are spiritually sick. Those of you under the sound of my voice today who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I would challenge you to remember how sick you were. Remember how somebody likely invaded into your life. God sent a providential relationship that somebody may have invited you to a table. Somebody built a relationship with you when you didn't even know Jesus. And then all of a sudden may have invited you to a church service where you came to know Jesus. Or they just worked with you. They were just alongside of you. It wasn't even about pushing necessarily the gospel on you. They were just loving you as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ would do. And in doing so, you saw the love of God expressed through their actions, through their words. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit started working on your heart. 
never forget you were sick. We all were. We're all in need of the healing, spiritually speaking, that Jesus provides. And I think the further and further we get away from that and the more that we do not think back to where we were at at those moments, the more I think our hearts can become callous to the very people we're trying to reach. Jesus didn't save us just to meet here on Sunday morning. He didn't change our lives just for our life story to be the only one that's different. When Jesus saves his people, he put them into a body. He put them into this thing called the church, and the body is to be the, are the ones to go out and to do the ministry, to proclaim his works, to proclaim that there's a living Savior, to bring the message of reconciliation, to tell a lost and dying world that there is hope through Christ. I remember where I was. Next Saturday, we do my, my grandmother's memorial service in my hometown. And I'm going to get an opportunity to do that memorial service at my spiritual dad's church. He was my youth pastor. And here I was, a 16-year-old kid. Grew up kind of going to church, but God had a whole bunch of rules, and I frankly didn't like them. And so that was my mom's thing. That wasn't my thing. But then at 16 years old, I met a man by the name of Jose Neves. And when I met him, immediately... He didn't force the gospel on me. He didn't do anything. He opened up his home to me. We played PlayStation. We hung out. We, he'd buy pizza. He'd get all these kids off the street. And basically would just hang out with us, would love us. And I genuinely believe through my mom's prayers and through him, he loved me into the kingdom. And I was a, I was a drug user. I was a person who definitely was not looking for Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Christ came into my life, I considered it a rude interruption because I quite liked my sinning. We would do well to consider who are those that are the tax collectors and sinners in our purview? Who are those who are the tax collectors and sinners in our current context? Those who are the socially outcast, those who are the broken, the drug-addicted victims, those of the LGBTQ community, those who are divorced and single parents, the elderly, those who are homeless, those who are just broken. All of these people are the same people who are like you and me, who are in desperate need of the Savior. Let's not become modern-day Pharisees. It's not about those people. Last I checked, the parable of the Good Samaritan basically tells us that everybody fits the category of neighbor. There's no person outside of the purview that God cannot save. So don't ever put yourself in a position where you are making judgment calls and putting yourself in a position where you're essentially playing God believing that people, certain people are worthy and others are not of the great salvation that you now possess. God can save anybody. And do you believe that your Lord and Savior is still saving people today? I believe it. I believe he's still saving people and wants to continue to save them as well. Here's a principle for you before we summarize and close. Jesus looks beyond the accepted norm to the heart and need of people. Jesus, in many ways, I believe that if Jesus was in a lot of our churches today in some ways, and some of the things that he said or would do would interestingly be considered revolutionary, which if we read the Gospels and we think about the context and to the things in which he said, we can see why people reacted in some ways to the things in which he said because they didn't understand truly what he was doing. Jesus looks beyond the socially acceptable norm. The normal thing would have been for him as a religious leader or teacher to not have associated with sinners and tax collectors, most certainly not to go in their home and most certainly not to share a meal with them. And yet he looks beyond that need because he sees the need of the heart and he sees that these people needed what he was providing. 
The biggest contrast between the attitude of Jesus and the Pharisees is displayed that the Pharisees wrote off people. They wrote them off because of their past, and yet Jesus saw beyond all of that to the deep need of a Savior, to be the deep need and be the Savior to bring only the healing that he can only bring. He didn't write them off because of their past. He looked beyond that. And I'm sure many of you could share a story like I could, that the very first time I heard the gospel, I didn't come to Christ. I heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And what made the difference? What made the difference was because the Holy Spirit was working. He was working through people. He was working through circumstances and situations to bring the deep-seated healing that only Jesus can bring. Let's summarize this for you. Our one true statement was this, that everybody's invited to Jesus' table. In this way, we can say it this way, the gospel's one size fits all. It's one size fits all. Everybody's invited to his table. We saw that there were the quote-unquote wrong people, the tax collectors and sinners, who were welcomed and welcomed Jesus, and he sat and he dined with them. The table is a place that is prepared for those who are inside the church, church folk, and those who are outside, those who need Christ. And my question is, do we give off a sense of judgment that repels people, or can we open our homes and tables to those who desperately need Christ, and may they feel welcomed, and may they feel loved without any pretense? And then second, we see the right people were at this meeting, or at least the ones who thought they were right, the self-righteous. Jesus looks beyond the accepted norm to the heart, and we need to see beyond what we deem to be acceptable and to see the brokenness of people around us who need Jesus. Jesus came for the sick, which you, all, you and I were all at one time sick. So let our hearts not become callous, but may we always have a heart of flesh that breaks and hurts and longs to see people to know him. How can we put this into practice? We're going to pray. So I want to encourage you, share a meal with a non-believer or someone you don't know. I'm going to give you two practical applications. Now some of you may genuinely say in your purview, your little bubble, maybe outside of work or even that, you may not have anybody that's necessarily a non-believer in your purview. Well, I'd encourage you, have lunch or dinner with somebody that you don't know right here in this church. Somebody who's different than you. Open up an opportunity. Be hospitable. Invite somebody into your home. Have a meal together. Or even at a restaurant. Get to know them. Get to hear their story. Share your story. But we are all in the purview of people who are not believers as well. Whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's at soccer games, whether it's even other family members. Are they welcome at your table? If they're welcome at your table, invite them for a meal. Don't make it about anything outside of just being getting to know them. And to just, just show hospitality. I'll tell you right now, the gospel comes best and works best when we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work and we don't try to force feed anything. I guarantee you, if you open up your home to be hospitable, people will want to come, they'll want to be around your table, and gospel conversations will naturally happen. Let's be people like that. I want to be a person like that. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that we all, those of us who know you and have come to faith in Christ, we've been invited to the table. We thank you that your invitation extends out to a world, your sacrifice is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole entire world. And yet, just like you called Matthew the tax collector, you're calling people to follow you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to have a heart of hospitality, a heart genuinely of love, to open our homes, to open our tables, to dine with other people, to sit and have coffee, with people who are not like us, people who may not even believe the same things we do, even people of other faiths, of other political affiliations. 
all for the express purpose of just being able to be present, to get to know people, to hear their story, and to be able to tangibly express love to them. Lord, I pray, I believe that this church genuinely wants to live out the fact as we always say that you are loved. And we do so in so many ways, Lord, and I pray that that would be the testimony of every person who calls this place home. That it wouldn't just be a love that is expressed internally, but it'd be expressed externally as well. Because, Lord, you loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, you died for us upon the cross. And, Lord, at one time we all were sick. May our hearts never grow callous. Help us to maintain and always have a heart of flesh. And may our table always be open as yours is always open to those who would receive you and those that would walk and allow you entrance to come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take an opportunity to worship and have the prayer team come forward. We're going to take an opportunity to pray. Every Sunday after our message, we have an opportunity for us to uh, be able to join together with each other in prayer. And we do this purposely because this is what it means to be the church, is an expression of loving one another as well. But also as a way, as the Holy Spirit has kind of worked on us as we've been in through the service to kind of process and worship through what we have been engaging with. So you can stand during this time, you can be seated as we engage with the worship team. My encouragement to you is that this is not spectator time. This is a time for us to pretend like it's you and God in the room. And we're going to go ahead and we're just going to go give them our hearts. And we're going to go in and worship and we're going to respond. But if you do have a prayer request, whatever the need may be, please allow one of these prayer partners all across this room to be able to pray with you. Because we'd love to have the opportunity to be able to do that. So let's take an opportunity to pray and to worship.
good, that's for sure. You may be seated. Again, if you're a first-time guest, we're really glad that you decided to worship with us today. Uh, we'd love to be able to get to know you and to give you a little gift for worshiping with us. There's a QR code on the screen behind me. You can either scan that with your phone, fill out a little digital connection card, or um, you can actually stop by the Connection Center as you exit the auditorium in the lobby area. Uh, please make sure to pick up your gift, no strings attached. Uh, we just want to go ahead and uh, just give you a little something as an expression of our love and our gratitude for you worshiping with us today and see how we can come alongside of you uh, as you journey in your spiritual journey, wherever you may be at. We're going to have the ushers come forward and we're going to worship through giving and then give you a few announcements and get you dismissed. So every Sunday we have the opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Uh, it, I, you know, it costs money to do ministry on earth. That's the reality of it. To uh, have a building and have facilities like this and to be able to make repairs and do things that have, that have had to be done recently. Uh, so I thank you all for your gracious giving, allowing us to be able to continue to do the ministry. And God continues to be faithful to Firewall as he has for over 80 plus years. And uh, we're so grateful for that. So let me just pray for the offering. Lord, we thank you that we have an opportunity to give uh, back just a small portion of what already belongs to you because it all comes from you. Pray that you would bless the gift and the giver, that you would cause it to multiply, Lord, that we may continue your kingdom work here in the area that you have called us to. We thank you for your love and your grace and your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewell Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewell. Moms, come bring the kids and hang out in the gym every third Thursday from 10.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Bring some lunch, sip some hot coffee, and chat with other moms as the kids play. Just a reminder, there will be no Wednesday night programming this week due to spring break. April 7th is Good Friday, and we will be having a special service that night at 6.30 p.m. Easter Sunday, bring the family as we celebrate our risen Savior with worship and baptisms. There will be no 9.30 a.m. activities and child care will only be available for two and under. If you are interested in being baptized, visit the Connection Center in the lobby to pick up a form and a pastor will contact you. For more information on these or any of our other events, go online to firewheelfellowship.com or you can always check us out on social media. All right, if we get you to stand, we'll go in and say our benediction and get you dismissed. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much, and we will see you all next time. Yeah.